Here at Knox, we are working through a book in the Bible called Acts. It is the Acts of the Apostles, and we think it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit, the continuing Acts of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we've been working through it sort of chapter by chapter and exploring what, is, what has God done in the past, because we know and realize God continues to do that good work here among us today, now. And so before we hear Scripture read from Dennis, I'm going to offer a prayer. Let's pray, shall we? Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your Word. It's a living Word, God. It's powerful. It's effective. And we pray that as we read words from a printed page, we pray that those words would shake off ink and paper and come alive for us in some profound ways. We pray, God, that you would do business with us today through your living Word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. A reading from the book of Acts, chapter 4, verses 1 to 22, found on page 1080 in the Pew Bibles. Acts 4, 1 to 22. Then the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. And as the high priest was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle. And we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, 
we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourself whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. One of uh, the privileges in my life is I get to be the dad to two kids, Owen and Lily. And um, one of the, the fun things about being a parent is the crazy conversations you have with your kids. They keep you young, my kids do. Like you, I am, you know, I'm an older guy, but I am so down with rap right now because of my son. You ask me about Kendrick Lamar or Chance the Rapper or Notorious B.I.G., we can talk. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you also have profound conversations with your kids, and often I find they're in the car. Um, I don't know what it is about a confined space, and you're not directly facing each other, but whew, some good conversation happens. I remember one time I was driving my daughter, Lily, to her choir practice in Toronto, and we were darting our way through Toronto traffic, and then she sort of lobs this question my way. She says, Dad... Um, are other religions, do they have the truth about who God is? Um, what's so special about Jesus, she asks. See why I love those car conversations with my kids? Those are big questions, aren't they? How would you answer my daughter? That's a question I bet many of us have, have wondered about have wrestled through ourselves. It's a question that I bet lingers still for some of us here today, a question we may or may not have found a satisfying answer to. And it's a question that sits at the heart of our faith. The central claim of Christianity is really a controversial one. It's the claim that Jesus Christ alone connects humanity back to God, to the living God, that he exclusively is the means of salvation, that salvation is found in Jesus alone. Now, in today's world, that's, that's controversial, right? It is one of the big things about Christianity that is probably most difficult, most offensive to a wide swath of people. It just sticks in people's craw. It's the problem of Jesus. But you got to know, it's not a new problem. It is not a postmodern, current-day problem. This has been a long problem. You probably noticed as we read this passage that people were offended uh, by what the disciples said about Jesus. So over two millennia ago, Jesus was a problem. People were aghast. They were offended by the claim of Christians that there is no other name in which we might find salvation. 
which I think should raise an important consideration as you process this, because if people back then were scandalized by this exclusive claim in Jesus, and yet came to a place of faith and belief, and of course, you track out the history of Christianity, millions and millions of people have come to believe, you've got to wonder why. Why? If they saw something that overcame their first instinct of offense, maybe we ought to look a little deeper too at Jesus Christ. What I find today is that I talk with people about Christianity is often people hear this claim and they say, Christianity, it just feels narrow-minded of Christians to claim these things. And then they quickly conclude, I, I feel like I don't need to investigate the claims of Christianity because who wants to investigate narrow-mindedness? It was narrow to those first hearers, but they saw something in spite of the apparent narrowness that got them to believe. Why did they believe it? What was it that they saw that overcame that initial offense and reaction to the exclusive shocking claim of Christians? Well, let's look at the story here. Two disciples are arrested uh, by the religious authorities, and they're handed over for questioning. They're held overnight for questioning. And the problem, the horrible, horrible crime, is that a man who had been able to walk is healed. It's a stunning miracle. Um, Think of what that man's life must have been like. So he had been crippled since birth. He had been never walked spent his whole life begging. He, his life was one of constant rejection and humiliation, scuttled to the margins of society, no one seeing his value, just people passing him by as he begged for scraps. But then the disciples stop, they see, they pay attention to this man, and they heal him in Jesus' name. And of course, everyone is amazed, stunned, flabbergasted. This, this is the guy they had seen begging since birth. They know this guy. They had passed him by countless times. They've occasionally tossed him some money, and here he is. He's standing. He's walking. He's likely dancing, I would imagine, too. What in the world is going on? And so the disciples then teach and tell that growing crowd what is going on. It is not us, they say, who did this. No, no, no. It is Jesus Christ who has healed this man. They're saying, listen, miracles like this are not just sort of impressive displays of power. They are pointers. They're directional markers so that you might know the one who does the miracles. And so they tell the crowd about Jesus and about how Jesus rose from the dead and about how he's alive. But the religious authorities, oh, they are bothered. A gathering of religious authorities all of a sudden are united in their opposition to this good news, which I think should give every Christian here pause. Here it is, the religious people, right? The people who had access to God's ways, to God's revelation, but did not have the eyes or the ears to hear the good news of God. That should stop us in our steps and say, how am I not hearing what God is saying? Well, this group of religious authorities, they, they, they refuse to believe, even in spite of the evidence. They refuse to track out the implications of this miracle that they clearly see. It's a notable miracle. Everyone knows it. It's happened. They refuse to see where it points to, where it leads. They were stuck in unbelief. 
Something deep in them was being challenged and pushed, and they are bothered, greatly disturbed, the Bible says in the book of Acts. It means to be just really grieved, your heart just sort of churning and troubled. They're angered, they're stirred up inside, which is interesting. So their unbelief is not an intellectual thing. They're not rationally considering the evidence here. Um, often we think of unbelief as sort of this measured, cool, rational posture, but very often unbelief can be unexamined convictions, sometimes irrational, which if you're not a Christian here, I hope might lead you to doubt some of your own doubts. So here's an obvious miracle that even the leaders recognize it's happened, can't explain it any other way, and yet they reject the reality to which the healing points. No amount of evidence is going to, uh, will count for them, will change their opposition to Jesus. So they arrest Peter and John, those two disciples, held in prison overnight, and then brought before all the rulers, the elders, the teachers of the law. That group is called the Sanhedrin. And it was the very same group that just weeks before had another trial in which Jesus was brought before that group. And Jesus was tried and convicted and sentenced to death by that very group. Imagine what those disciples must have been thinking, knowing these, these are the people who killed Jesus. And they begin by questioning them. By what power are you doing these things? By what power or name are you doing these things? And Peter says, Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with his boldness. Peter says, it is Jesus. Remember, the one who stood before you just a few weeks ago, the one you condemned to die, that Jesus who rose from the dead has now healed this man. And then in verse 12, he makes the shocking claim, salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. There it is again. The problem of Jesus. The claim of Christians that Jesus is profoundly unique. So let's be honest, that mm, rankles the best of us, right? That offends, especially in our culture, to assert things like no other or no one else. It unsettles people. It unsettles and offends our, our inclusive, pluralistic sensibilities. And you've heard those objections too, haven't you? Or maybe you've quietly wondered the same. How can Christians say that? What do you mean, only Jesus? How can you, with your limited perspective, say that there's no name under heaven or earth by which we must be saved? What about Buddha? What about Muhammad? The Dalai Lama? What about all the other religions? So, let's deal with it. This is an important question for us, isn't it? Especially in our Western culture where the dominant belief is what you might call inclusivism. And that is the idea that no one has the full grasp on what is true and that all religions are equally valid, true paths to God. It's interesting. Atheism says all religions are false. Inclusivism says all religions are true. But take a look at those two key beliefs, those two statements. Both of those, interestingly enough, are exclusive truth claims. Both of those are making quite exclusive 
truth claims. The only way to say that all religions only see a part of the truth and so are equally valid paths to God, only way you can say that is if you say you see the whole truth, which is the very thing you say nobody can say. That's an exclusive truth claim. There's no way for you to know all religions are equal or to say that all religions are false unless you assume the kind of knowledge you say nobody has. It's strange. It looks humble to say that, but it's not. It's an exclusive truth claim. So the first thing we need to note as we wrestle with this is that Christians are not the only ones holding exclusive truth claims. Everyone does. Everyone holds exclusive truth claims. What we need to do is what we need is examine the exclusive claims that people make, test them, discern them. Are they true? And where do they lead? Do they lead to lives of compassion? Which exclusive truth claim is going to lead to a community of the widest, most loving inclusion? Now, really quickly, if you look at the the history of the church, you see it was the exclusive claims of these Christians that led them to be agents of reconciliation and peace in their world. They became some of the most loving, compassionate, inclusive community the world has ever seen. Read through the book of Acts, and you see Christians doing some remarkable things, serving the poor, just spending themselves on behalf of the poor, risking their lives, creating a community that transcends barriers of race and gender and ethnicity. So, i got to speak louder. What is it? (laughs) What is it about these truth claims of Jesus that created such a diverse and loving people? Christians would say, along with Peter in this text, there's no other name by which we might be saved because there is something so unique about Jesus. Billions of people are sure that they know him and not only worship him, but sing to him, create grand works of art to him, build cathedrals to him, eagerly follow him, bet their lives on him, go willingly where he leads them, even to die for him because Jesus is unique. One professor and pastor, Daryl Johnson, notes that there is no other name other than Jesus for salvation because of what Jesus said, because of what Jesus did, and because of the salvation Jesus offers. Let's look at those three. There's no other name than Jesus because no one said the things Jesus did. If you're not a Christian, I wonder, have you engaged the teachings and the sayings of Jesus for yourself. And I'm not talking about just the wisdom of, of his teachings, which some of which is mirrored in other religions, but the claims he made. I mean, he made claims unlike anyone else. Think of the way Jesus spoke. He spoke with authority, didn't he? People were marveling at the authority of Jesus' crowds. They said, no one teaches like this. Jesus, in his teaching, even dared to set his words against traditions of religious authorities. At six different times in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, uh, you have heard it was said this, but I say to you this. One rabbi listening to Jesus, reading Jesus, Rabbi Jacob Neusner, wants to ask Jesus this, who do you think you are, God? Well, yes, indeed, he is God, and that is why there is no other name. 
Think of the Gospel of Mark. It's one of the accounts of Jesus. And in the Gospel of Mark, Mark tells us a story how it's evening and the disciples were caught in this violent storm on the Sea of Galilee and waves were breaking over the sides of the boat and Jesus was on the boat fast asleep and the disciples are waking him up. They're freaking out saying, Jesus, we're going to die. Do something. And Jesus stands up and he speaks to all the environmental forces and he says, be still. No appeals, no incantations, no sort of voodoo magic at all. He just speaks to nature's raw power and he says, hush. And the winds die down and the sea becomes completely still. And the disciples now are freaked out even more because they're saying, who is this? that even the wind and the waves obey him. Or think of how Jesus spoke about himself in his preaching and in teaching. He, he talked about himself in some unique ways. Every other religious figure would always point away from themselves to others. So religious leaders would say things like, follow the law or follow the eightfold path to enlightenment or obey the karma. But Jesus says, follow me. Abide in me. Be yoked to me. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. If you are thirsty, come to me and drink, and you will have rivers of life flowing in you. I am the light of the world, Jesus says. Follow me. You will not walk in darkness. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though they die. Come on, no one else claimed those sorts of things about himself, right? Now, you could conclude Jesus was madly, insanely wrong about those things. But you've got to admit, no one claimed those things that Jesus said about himself. And no one did the things that Jesus did. And I'm not talking about his many miracles, because many others have done some significant, what you might call miraculous things as well. I'm thinking about what Jesus accomplished on the cross, because in Jesus Christ, we see the living God, almighty, powerful God, humbling himself, becoming human, becoming one of us, entering into the brokenness of our human existence, understanding it, feeling it, taking it on himself. He knows our need for rescue and salvation, and so he offers his life for ours. And on the cross, Jesus willingly gave himself so that we might live. And in his death, he deals with all the forces that are allied against us, that have held us captive. He engages the power that threatens to destroy us. And he cancels our debt. He forgives our sins. He frees us. And he not only died, but after three days in the tomb, Jesus rose from the dead. And his disciples, who went to that tomb, find it empty. Nobody there. The tomb was open, the body was gone, and that body was just not moved or misplaced. It was transformed. That was not a resuscitated body. That was a resurrected Jesus. And it was in this resurrection, interestingly, that the disciples are teaching about, right? That Jesus, who's crucified, is alive. There's no other name because no one did the things that Jesus did. And lastly, Christians can say something as outrageous as there's no salvation in no other name, because no one offers what Jesus does. The salvation Jesus offers is so unique. In this story that we read from Acts, the confrontation between the, these two disciples and the religious authorities and rulers is about a healing, 
A crippled man is well and walking again. It was a physical healing. Now remember, these miracles, again, they're not these displays of power. They're signs. They're pointing to something, and they're pointing to the way of God's kingdom. And they're saying, in God's kingdom, this is how things function. People are healed and made whole again. It is a first fruit of what Jesus is doing, the salvation he is bringing. But then remember the disciples are talking about resurrection here too. The resurrection of Jesus. What was it? It was a physical, bodily transformation. Again, the bodily resurrection of Jesus is is a sign. It's a pointer to what God is doing in this world. Both the resurrection and that healing are pictures, vignettes for us of the unique salvation that Jesus comes to bring. See, the Christian vision of salvation is about forgiveness of sins, yes, and includes the restoration of everything, anything that is bent or bruised or broken in this world, anything spiritual or physical, God intends to restore it, to heal it. It is a vision for the material, emotional, relational, spiritual healing of the whole world. It's that big. Do you know how utterly unique that is? Outside of the Bible, no other world religion holds out a hope or interest in the restoration of of material shalom and justice in this world. There's a Sri Lankan author and writer, Vinath Ramachandra, and he articulates this so well. All other salvations, he says, offer a salvation. Certainly they do. But here it is. It's some form of release from ordinary existence. Salvation, in many other faiths, is seen as an escape from this material life into some kind of transcendent reality. But the salvation Jesus offers is so different and unique. He writes this, biblical salvation lies not in an escape from this world, but in the transformation of this world. You will not find hope for the world in any of the religious systems or philosophies of humankind. The biblical vision is unique. That is why when some say there is salvation in other faiths too, I ask them, what salvation are you talking about? No faith holds out a promise of eternal salvation for the world, the ordinary material world, than the cross and resurrection of Jesus do. No other name offers the unique life-affirming, world-healing salvation of Jesus. And so Christians, therefore, have confidently said, I know this might be hard, and I know it probably is offensive, but there's no other name because Jesus is the most compelling person the world has ever encountered. Christians confidently center their lives on the person of Jesus Christ, believing him to be the clearest revelation of God, finding in him alone life, salvation that the world has hungered for. And so if you're a follower of Jesus here today, you can confidently say with Peter, there's no other name. I I know in our culture it's not politically correct to do that, right, to confess this, but you need not cower back. Don't be ashamed to claim the uniqueness of Jesus. I know people will challenge you. If you're a student at U of T, you know what, I bet some classmates are going to tell you how narrow. Some professors are going to push back against that and challenge you. For others of us, maybe it's our colleagues at work or friends that will likely say, how can you say that? And yet, without a hint of arrogance, right, 
got to strike that because the gospel humbles us with a humbleness, a humility, and yet a confidence. You can say, there is no other name. Because Jesus Christ is both intellectually credible and existentially satisfying. And you can live with that confident faith. And if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, we're glad you're here. We delight in the fact that many people at at various places on their spiritual journey come to Knox and are trying to ask important questions. We are a church that really values those questions and the people who ask them. But if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, can I urge you to, to investigate Jesus Christ because he's too good, he's too important, he's too unique to not do that. And I urge you to to do your own personal investigation because here's what I often find. I get to talk to a lot of people and what I often hear from them is is sort of a cultural recording uh, that gets played over and over again. We pick up sound bites, maybe from Richard Dawkins, maybe from a professor, maybe from a newspaper pundit, you know, bashing religion or making uh, some attacks on Christianity and, and people will take it as truth without reflecting, without asking questions about it. So, can I ask you, would you do a couple things? First, would you doubt your own doubts? Genuine faith requires rigorous thinking. So, take the time to examine your doubts, and then dive into and examine the claims of Jesus. But then do more than that, because you know what? Few followers of Jesus trudge after him on the basis of arguments or historical facts. It's who Jesus is that is so compelling. So can you open yourself to the living reality of Jesus, the person that billions of people across cultures, across history, have said is unique, compelling, who is God, who has provided true meaning for their lives. Open yourself to that possibility that he is who he said he is and know the life-transforming love of Jesus. Back to that car trip with my daughter, asking that really easy question, right? How do we know our other religions are the truth of God? What makes Jesus so special? We had a really fascinating conversation. Told her that being a Christian doesn't mean you have to say other religions are all wrong. We can spot some truth in each of the other faiths. We can name that. We can learn from people of other faith as well. But we can confidently say Jesus is unique among all others because of what he did, because of what he said, and what he offers. No one else does that. In Christ alone, friends, there is no other name under heaven and earth by which we may be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book of Acts, which is, is so realistic to our lives, God. It's the encounters of, we, we see the disciples, they get played out in our day and age too. Big questions that are asked back then are big questions today. Thank you for the wisdom it contains. Thank you for the, for the guidance it provides. And Lord, we pray that as we engage all the important questions of life, we as Christians could Be empowered by your spirit to respond with grace and with truth, with humility and with confidence at the same time. May we gladly confess 
the good news of Jesus. And Holy Spirit, if there are some here today who would, who would open their heart to that, I pray that you would lead them through your power to Jesus Christ and to know his life and his love. We thank you that that is available to each one of us today. In his name we pray, amen.